Welcome to the Poor Pearls Almanac, where we do dramatic clappings, according to Matt. And you heard it here first. We clap. And we do it inside. Yeah, nobody knows what a clap-in is. We, we clap in for our recording to get the audio cue correct and timed up. Yeah, it was very suspenseful, if you ask Matt. You can't just go scream and clap into a microphone, guys. Already. I, we can. Anyway, a little behind the scenes for the listener. Yeah. So uh, welcome back to part two of the Erna Bennett story. If you don't know, I'm Andy, and I'm joined by my great co-hosts, Elliot and Matt. And this is, once again... The Poor Pearl's Almanac. Hell yeah. Welcome all. Welcome all. We're a podcast now. Sorry, preppers. You're on your own. <laughs> I mean, we've been a podcast, Elliot. I know, but it was supposed to be about prepping and we've just gotten... You didn't say the word uh, history. We, we, we got the list. This is a podcast? You were recording all of this? We're not just these, buddies. These are my memoirs, so I remember what happened last week. <laughs> <laughs> this, <laughs> this is actually like his recording before he goes completely senile and... So his, his wife has good memories of him in the future. Yeah. We'll, we'll just say memories, right? Yeah. yeah. Very, so, very neutral memories. Not good. So some good, some... What are we talking about today, boys? <laughs> anyway. Uh, we're talking about the Red Lobster, actually. So, Matt, as a recently minted Mainer, mm -hmm. Red Lobster, friend or foe? Well, I haven't seen one up here, I have to say. So that's probably a foe then, right? Yeah, it's probably a foe. I okay. don't know. And by foe, I mean like F-A-U-A-X, not oh. like, I mean, it could be F-O-E too, but- Friend foe is, sounds like a good title for the cake, fake cake shows. Oh, yes. We said it first, people. You heard it here. Should we pivot? Is this- P Yeah, so we're, we're not a podcast anymore. We're a, we're a fake <laughs> we're a cake show. Yeah. <laughs> We're a fakery, actually. You should definitely produce that show, Matt. I'll be your intern. Okay, sweet. Let's get it rolling. All right, so today we're going to actually talk about something important. We're going to talk about Erna Bennett and the work she is doing. So the last time we'd spoken, she was just starting to work with the FAO because of her research interests, and she had been overseeing massive collections to document and store genetic diversity across the Mediterranean. Moving towards 1970, she continued writing papers and basically pushing for a more comprehensive understanding of genetic diversity and what it really means to protect that diversity. I mean, they're just throwing all the seeds in storage and calling it protection, right? Yeah, and she understood that genetic diversity was intrinsically tied to the fluidity of life. I know, sounds very... Is like... that the bumper sticker? It, that's a long <laughs> bumper sticker. So early into the episode... Genetic diversity is intrinsically tied to the fluidity of life. Might be a good bumper sticker. Sorry. It sounds like a really like vague way of trying to like push like free love. Like fuck everyone, right? I mean, yeah, I need to advertise. <laughs> <laughs> so the idea was that like, you know, the relationships with plants and the landscape around them is this really iterative process, right? And in that continually changing practice seeds don't get stored indefinitely. So by putting them in these seed banks, they weren't engaging with that that process, that evolution, that co-evolution, right? And that was inevitably going to set up these plants for failure since the ecological conditions and other species that they would co-evolve with would no longer exist. Okay, so it's like evolve or die. And that like staying frozen in a seed bank isn't evolving because you're not a part of the ecosystem evolving with it. 
culture that's not just a plant or living thing issue it's also like a cultural issue too right like cultures have to continually evolve or they die it's like the movie blast from the past you've seen that one yeah. andy i haven't i mean i was just gonna agree me with you either <laughs> that that is a movie matt, so, is it a movie it, matt confirm with me he could be screwing with me i don't know i think it was mm-hmm. brendan fraser oh brendan and fraser. he got locked in a bunker because of the nuclear during the Cold War, there was a nuclear scare, and his family oh, locked him in a bunker for like thirty vaguely, years. And he, yeah. he grew up; he was like thirty-six, and he spent his whole life in a bunker, like with nineteen late late forties, early fifties, like propaganda. And then he came out, hmm. and <laughs> there was still late forties, early fifties propaganda, just worse. Maybe he was forty something because I think he came out in the nineties. So I okay. sounds that, pretty good. But that so was the movie post. Yeah, post-Cold War would make a lot of sense. I digress. This is very related to the FAO. So as she was doing this research and becoming more aware of these issues, she actually wrote a paper outlining the severity of the genetic loss and its connection, rather its direct connection, to the Green Revolution, which she submitted to the FAO, only for it to never be seen again. Weird, right? Totally normal for defenders of scientific rigor. Absolutely. Now, in an interview, she said she believed that it was likely because of lobbyist pressure, since her findings would have been detrimental to the continued growth of the Green Revolution. I mean, my God, the Green Revolution was an absolute shit show from the sounds of it, wasn't it? Yeah, and it really, it really was. I, I was going to try to like add some nuance to it, but like, there's not a, like that the negatives so heavily outweigh the positives. It's just, yeah. I, I do think it's worth noting that, like, it did kind of start from a good place. I, I think, like, the folks who did push for it, at least initially, truly believed it was a solution for the world and a net positive. And many of them, many well-meaning people continued to advocate for the Green Revolution, despite the fact that it was, like, very quickly co-opted. You know what they say about good intentions? No, what do they say, Matt? Oh. I don't know. You you don't you guys don't I hoped you guys would know you you think it's one of those things you heard a lot you think that's you, the whole idiom you think that's the whole thing no it's a Rickyism it's oh god yeah, yeah. isn't it about uh, <laughs> uh, a road to hell is paved with good intentions or something no oh, that would make sense I'm pretty sure that's what it is the road to hell is paved with good intentions I really want to know what a Rickyism for that would be. Sorry, I can't come up with anything on that on the spot. Sorry, everyone. So needless to say, Erna continued to do her work, even though her paper disappeared. And in 1970, she actually had a number of new papers published. And the term plant genetic resources was used for the first time for an international audience, which drove what was later called the, in quote, plant genetic resources movement. Now, this movement was predicated on a fundamental understanding of how genetic adaptation worked. So her argument, along with like all the other genecologists at the time, was that adaptation to a new environment could not be attributed to specific singular genes, but the action of many genes at once. So the significance of this was that plans for crop improvement would at best be achieved through a combination of many genes, not by just focusing on one or even a few. What this really meant was that the genotypes needed to be saved, not just single genes that show a specific trait, which is how people were breeding plants at this point. I mean, like, from, like, today's biological perspective, 
I feel like this is like kind of common sense. We understand that like there may be a handful of singular genes most responsible for like specific traits, but genetics is far more complicated than like a reductive understanding that we can like plug and play one specific gene, except in like some rare cases. Right. Reminds me of what's his name, Mendel, when he came up with his pea plant experiment. But like the oh the peas wasn't that it the yeah the Punnett squares yeah, yeah but he was doing it with pea plants mm-hmm. and he yeah. was we're gonna be talking he, about that next year he was basically doing the physical observation of like oh I can see these traits in these plants and like they're still basically trying to do that same plug and play where it's one gene at a time to see what happens instead of you know many genes as a whole sort of like the the scientists in Jurassic Park they lied to me. <laughs> It just plugged in like lying? they just plugged in like one, I guess it was a gene sequence of like a frog, and then they had dinosaurs. You think uh you, you think the animated like it was one gene between a dinosaur and a frog? You think the animated uh strand of DNA, dino DNA lied Mr. to you? DNA? Dino yeah. DNA. He would. <laughs> he wouldn't do that. He's a scientist. He wouldn't do that. Yeah, he and his cousin the paperclip from Microsoft work and <laughs> You're going to finish that sentence, no, Elliot? I want to no, know. No, I don't. I want to keep the show. Nobody needs to hear my personal thoughts about that fucking paperclip. Hey, Elliot, <laughs> I hate to ruin your paperclip binge. But Anti-clippy. Anti-clippy. Wow, that is so problematic in 2023. <laughs> now, so I hope you heard what I said, though, about the Punnett squares. Did you hear me? I missed it. What'd you say? Oh, we're going to cover it next year. Oh, the Elliot. List. The list. the list. You heard it here, folks. We already know. Wow, that, was a, that was a nice little foray into uh, ASMR. Hello, Matthew. No, no, I... that's that's okay. <laughs> that's fine. Right, so that's fine. It's not. Yeah. <laughs> We're not here to kink shame. We're just here to kink ask why. Don't worry <laughs> about it. So, uh, Erna, let's let's get back to Please. our girl. Oh my Please. god! <laughs> yes. Needless to say, she was on the front lines advocating for this, right? She really believed that we needed to create a diverse collection of plants that carried different genes that offered resistance to whatever it was that they wanted to develop resistance for. The idea was basically being that each plant that survived might have done it slightly differently and offers their descendants a diversity of tools to deal with things like pathogens and all sorts of other pests. They sit them down on your little your little plant What's it called? I guess a little no- node. Node. Little node, right? Sit them down on your node <laughs> and say, listen here, little bud. Well, I tell you about your, your great-grandpappy plant or whatever whatever <laughs> species the plant is. Great-grandpappy sunflower. I don't know. <laughs> this is real weird. Even even by my standards. <laughs> That's funny. The bud's funny, though. Pictured a, I just pictured a southern sunflower. I don't know why. I see it. It sounds a little racist, and that's coming from a black man. It's just very strange. You don't know what race that sunflower. I was trying to pick a species of plant. Yeah, I guess you could call it a race. It's a sunflower. Okay. This is fun. This has been lots of fun. Now I want seeds. (laughs) All right. So Bennett suggested methods which would be accompanied by surveys of climate, local variations, agricultural practices, social structure, customs, and history. Now, much like our good, good friend Ephraim Hernandez, she understood the significance of local knowledge and how plant evolution had situated itself within a community and its particular ancestral knowledge. Without this detailed local knowledge of habitat variations, there would really be no reliable basis for plant exploration. 
So she knew that seed vaults only stored half of what we needed. And outside of the evolutionary process, the seeds were destined to become more artifacts than resources, sort of like they belong in a museum. It's like pirate rules, but for plants, more like guidelines. Much like a frame, her work wasn't always fully understood or respected at its time. I'm sure being a woman played absolutely no part in that. Yeah, an Irish woman, Matt. A gay Irish woman. Damn. Was she was she like out of the closet when she was doing this? When she was like relatively well known? So I don't think she ever came out of the closet, to be honest. In the 90s, during the interview the government of Australia did with her, she she repeatedly refers to Prue as her roommate, despite like living together for 30 years and basically gushing on and on in the interview about how wonderful she is and how much she cares about her, which is like really sad. And they were roommates. (laughs) (laughs) The, The surprising roommates that never dated. Good times. So it was actually during this time in the 1960s that she met Prue Rigby. There's literally nothing on the internet about Prue, although I suspect she's still alive and I won't talk about why I think that on the air. And despite her politics and her sexuality, Erna was uh, quite conservative in that area. Like social structure? Yeah, like cultural stuff. So remember how I said you weren't going to love her later on? So in that interview she did in the 90s, she talks about the FAO trying to get African countries on board their projects, even giving some token positions to public figures in those countries so that they'd be on board with bringing those monocrops, those GMOs from Monsanto and the like into the region. The problem was she didn't call them Africans. Oh, what'd she say? Hard R, Matt. Sounds weird. (laughs) What do you think? Hard R, Elliot. Mm. Republicans? All right. So in her defense. Go on. I want to hear it. (laughs) I'm not going to. No, I want to hear it. Okay. All right. So the N word has a very different utilization in Ireland, given the, the nation's whiteness. But I don't think she really used it that way. Yeah, I don't think so either. <laughs> um, it like the way she uses it in in context uh, is that it's more of like a I think a weird understanding of like the 1960s black power utility of the term, like the gesture for the purpose, like they're a token black guy, so their PR team wouldn't be called racist. Right? Who could possibly find that racist? Yeah. So, uh, anyways. We're going to let that one sink in for a moment and listen to some really great ads that don't have a hard R in them. I don't understand why you said I wouldn't like her. I like her already. (laughs) Okay, well then, see you guys on the other side. Hey folks, thanks for listening. This is Andy from the Poor Proles Almanac. Hopefully you're enjoying the podcast so far, and right now I'm talking to you from a commercial in a Poor Proles Almanac podcast. I'm sure you're enjoying the show and maybe even enjoying some of our ridiculous ads. We are able to keep our episodes ad-free and keep the lights on here because of support from listeners like you. If you think we're adding valuable perspective to the subjects of agriculture, ecology, climate change, and politics, then please consider giving us some support on Venmo, Ko-Fi, Patreon, or PayPal, all of which can be found at our website, poorproles.com. Please, don't make me go to Jeff for money. Jeffrey Basil Jeffrey 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 Jeffrey
Okay, we're back with Erna, Erna Bennett. Bennett for the hard R. Yes, ex- exactly. She was always emphasizing a hard R. Or both T's and so on. As she was doing all of her. Okay, that that's really hard to do. Research. Yeah, we're we're done with this. Uh, she was butting head. She was butting heads with with what the leaders with basically all the the big names in genetics. Now Otto Frankel who was one of the world's most renowned geneticists of the time, basically disagreed with Bennett's entire like argument. Not necessarily in principle, but like in practicality. One of his arguments was, in quote, what is the purpose of keeping land races in a dynamic state in their original site if the site itself is changing beyond recognition, end quote. I mean, it's like not an incorrect assessment if you're thinking about capturing the genetic information, because it's like, Becoming similar to genetics already available, but like I think, well, based on like what you've said, I think that it was like much also to do with the like cultural connection to the plants and like that. Oh my uh, god! Like taking I, I, these. I think I can hear Jeopardy music playing. <laughs> all right, all right. No, I I think you're right. Like he was. I, I want to say like hope, hopelessly pragmatic and there's nothing necessarily wrong with having that voice as a piece of the conversation, but the solution wasn't going to solve anything other than maybe like the most worst case world scenario being slightly less worse. All, so all Otto Franco is saying, you guys are long winded as fuck. All <laughs> Otto Franco is saying is Erna Bennett didn't do it. She, she ain't on, she's not on point here with her theory and he, he called her out. And so, what did he do, or what did she do? Basically, they just argued about this back and forth. They and were then academic wrote a book about together. it, so that's cool. Yeah, they were very academic. I love when they write books together. I think that's really yes. cute. You know, <laughs> and like they don't yes. thank each other, it's... and like the thank yous at the end, the acknowledgments at the end. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and there's like someone else in the book that's like, hold on to your hats, hold on to your hats. You'll never know the the history of what happened to make this book be created that three thousand people will read. Oh my god. <laughs> So um, you read it. <laughs> I, I did. You don't want to know what I had to read to to put this episode together. I I literally had to read like the FAO minutes for the oh, conferences that to like. Re- but it yeah. was it was kind of interesting. Like I would just like keyword search for certain stuff. But anyways, behind the scenes, it was uh, around this time that Bennett started to like really regret the way the work was evol- changing how breeding was happening, and that crop adaptation wasn't happening on farms but actually like in in breeders plots and then being like sold from there now this was in very stark contrast to frankel who in fact worried that the genetic diversity being exposed to changing agricultural practices would lose what the genetics had been preserved for which to a point is accurate but also like points to the invalidity of his whole system right that eventually those seeds are going to have to leave the vaults to go do the thing that they have to do and they're going to evolve for those new conditions no matter where they are if you haven't noticed they're, they're kind of on two different paths here and it should be no surprise then that frankel was like an avid supporter of the green revolution believing that bennett's plan would never do more than feed local communities which while his goal was in contrast to like feed the world yeah and i think it like definitely points to very different understanding of what it means to feed people. The idea of the Green Revolution was basically Anglo countries saying that the rest of the world couldn't feed itself, even if they meant well while 
Frankel's criticism of Irma is basically not really like critical. Like, isn't the goal of that communities can feed themselves? I mean, it sounds like he's arguing that communities are fundamentally incapable of feeding themselves, or maybe even worse, that communities feeding themselves is actually a bad thing, and the Green Revolution was supposed to save people from having to do that. Very true. Yeah, and I think this is a really important point, because, like, Frankel highlights here an important distinction between, like, Green Revolution idealists and people like Ephraim and Erna. The problem for folks like Frankel is twofold. People can't feed themselves without science, like Western science, to save them. But also, the idea of communities feeding themselves is ultimately bad because it means those people aren't free to do other things. Yeah, like productive things, like working in a sweatshop. I need some fucking new Nikes, Matt. I haven't had a pair of Nikes in a while, actually. Um... Get those goddamn Tell these kids goddamn to work. kids to get their tiny hands back to work on shoes that I don't need. Mer- America. Oh my God. Sweat harder. Jesus. America. Make your children sweat harder for our cheap shit. And you That's know That's the bumper sticker. And I, and I have always said that. Um, but, <laughs> but like, seriously, it seems like the Green Revolution was like built on this idea of food being completely treated as a production commodity with like no cultural or community value outside of like strictly calories. And I think that's actually pretty obvious when you start to like think about how the crops are utilized and so on. And uh, Erna had no problem with doling out criticism about these issues. At the 1967 conference, she laid out her concerns with how the Green Revolution through organizations like the Rockefeller Foundation were storing seeds. She argued that, and I quote, I see no special advantage in conservation in the form of seed apart from the eminent one of convenience, and I think that attempts to find other merits in the steady state which seed storage represents seems to come dangerously near to adopting museum concepts. The purpose of conservation is not to capture the present moment of evolutionary time in which there is no special virtue, but to conserve material so that it will continue to evolve. Such continued evolution could only be possible in in situ collections, end quote. Evolve or die. Yeah, and I feel like that's a recurring theme here. And I think a point we harped on with Ephraim is that the Green Revolution's vision of treating food and genetic diversity as an artifact was so beyond the scale of what our resources could do, at least like within like the profit system. Which comes back to this point that we've been making over... Uh, I don't know, 160 episodes, that food systems and communities can't fundamentally fit into a profitable capitalist model, at least not one which demands increased profits continuously. There are ecological limits to productivity, right? My point isn't really to harp on this specific like ideological wedge between Erna and other gynecologists at the time, or that Frankel was particularly wrong or motivated by the wrong things, but rather to highlight how this woman, you know, an Irish woman in genetics, fundamentally grappled with these issues facing biodiversity loss much differently than her her colleagues, right? And it was significantly at a great risk to her career. Her career? Doing the hard R's? Yes, career. Yes, and now it sounds Cur- like she's a mailman. Career. Courier. I can't do the hard <laughs> R's. Too, too many hard R's. Career. Join the mail service and have a career as a courier. Careers as a courier. All the hard R's. Career, career. Yes. Or an R. In my Ford. <laughs> Drive my Ford. 
Okay, we're done. We're done with this. <laughs> so, so like I said, um, at the same time uh, in 1970, her and uh, Otto Frankel published a book called Genetic Resources and Plants. This was a key book for initiating the 1972 Stockholm Conference on the Human Environment, which is basically a predecessor to the Earth Summits starting in 1992. I feel like everyone's probably heard of those. And basically, it was a call for the conservation of crop genetic resources. It was also, and I hinted at this before, I might have even said it, that she met her partner, Prue Rigby. You gotta hand it to a woman who's managed to have her entire name as part of a Beatles song. Yeah, especially when you're not even British. I think she was Australian. That's like bad British. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> wow, bad British. You've just offended like 1% of our audience. <laughs> Sorry, guys. Australians are just like... I mean, isn't that where Australia... Didn't it start as a penal colony from Brit Britain? That's how it started. I mean, the, the, white, the white people part That's of it, yeah. That's what I'm saying. No one cares about the white people history. Come on, Elliot. You should know I this. I like the bad parts. That's why I said it. The bad parts. Oh my God. We're all horrible. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So, but seriously, though, our girl, Prue Rigby. Speaking of Rigby, Eleanor Rigby, we probably should do an episode on the Eleanor Roosevelt variety of Eleanor because she had some like really cool community projects that definitely have not gotten enough attention and we should talk about them. Yep. It's going on the list. Yeah. Got seriously, it. though. Come on, guys. The real list. It's on the list, Andy. I didn't write shit. I'm not writing shit down. The, I'm not writing. The, I'm not, I don't even have a pen. The harder you say it. Down. Oh, my God, guys. I wonder it's, if, can maybe, dear listeners, can someone keep a list just so, just in case we need it? Yes. So this podcast never ends. You I, need to give us gonna the There's going to be list. at least one listener who does the it. The fake list no, and the gonna, real list. They're going to drive me insane. Yes. So listeners, anyways. if you have a list, write in. <laughs> We're going to make bumper stickers that are just the list. It's going to be empty. <laughs> Don't ask me about the list. <laughs> Don't ask me about my yes. list. Oh, my God. I'm so getting pulled over. Oh, my like God. That. That's... <laughs> yeah, that's like... <laughs> that's awful. No, we can got to make uh, that. Yeah. That would go I over real it. well. I, I think it's a great idea. Don't, Don't ask, ask me, me about, about it. About it. <laughs> so, anyways. Favorite cheeses. Now, <laughs> despite our girls' efforts, the storage facilities that were built that were going to be isolated from the place of the seeds origins ultimately won this battle as we all know and continued to exist and all of the shortfalls that erna had been concerned about basically came true now you can read about this in helen ann curry's endangered maze which focuses on the seed collections of maize in central america but the lessons played out basically the same across the globe oh 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 and shameless plug you also interviewed her last summer we did, and I uh, highly recommend it. So during this period of storage, it became clear to Bennett that uh, certain companies seemed to be treating the storage facilities kind of as their own personal resource bank. I know, I know, shocked. Oh no, the capitalists did the thing they always do. You know, take advantage of people trying not to destroy the planet. Man, who could have seen this coming? Um, not me. Uh, sometimes I think I wish Captain Planet was real. Captain Planet? And he was angrier. Do you, you guys you just ask Captain who, Planet? I mean, I do. I don't. Jesus Christ, Matt. Really? Well, I mean, when... Google Captain Planet right. right now. Is it... I don't know if this is like... He's like, he's like adult hipster Bart Simpson. If you took Bart the Simpson. Green Giant and any gym teacher and smashed 
No, the green, Captain the green giant and the yes. pineateers. Oh, I've no. seen, I've the seen the green mullet of justice. Wait, 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 wait. I've seen memes from this. Yeah, Captain Planet and Bart Simpson together. Wait, no, the green giant and Bart Simpson together give you. I Captain mean, he Planet. had a pretty gnarly. Interesting. Mullet. That mullet is epic. It's a green. Yeah, well, it's a green. Yes. It Four is. seasons, nineteen ninety. If anyone else is confused. Oh, if you have, if you ever have time, Matt, smoke a little weed, watch Captain Planet. It's horrible and great. It's horrible and great at the same time. I'll add it to my list. Yeah, it's all on the list. <laughs> it's as extremely we say painful here. to watch. It's like our podcast. It's extremely painful to like, you know. Wow. What, Elliot? You know what? That that's no. That's pretty good. Yeah, <laughs> you should listen that's, to my podcast. Accurate. It's pretty painful to watch. Yeah. Oh, cool! You have a podcast. Uh, what it? Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's painful. Yeah, you should watch it. You guys don't watch podcasts? YouTube. We do have a YouTube. Someone is listening to this right now on YouTube. Just think about it. Wow. Shout out to our YouTube listener. All like 60 of them. We appreciate you. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) So, uh, yeah. So as I was saying, Erna, the fact that these went on to be like, have all these issues, right, was not a surprise to her. And uh, it became most obvious what these collections were becoming, right? So... Basically, collections could either be targeted at general collection of materials for the sake of diversity, or collections were focused on specific plants. Missions under the FAO, in contrast to the work being done under Vavilov, were almost entirely focused on specific plants with high value instead of working to protect genetic erosion across a diversity of species in what Vavilov called centers of diversity. I feel like maybe they could have found a better name than that, but it's okay. Listen, Matt, they're scientists, not, I don't know, Derek Zoolander. Yeah, so these <laughs> these seed banks, uh, they faced a number of shortfalls, right? From basically being directed by corporate interests to poor documentation and classification to many seeds just simply not being stored properly and going bad. Many sites were severely understaffed and simply weren't capable of even like keeping track of what seeds were being stored in the first place. Further as documented in the long-as-shit interview she gave in Australia, Erna noted that she had spoken with individuals who freely admitted that they were given explicit permission by their employers to try and buy seed collections to store for their own personal bank. Looking at you, Monsanto. Effectively, corporations were using the publicly sourced seed banks for personal discretion and to remove those seeds from the public bank when they thought they would be beneficial. Now, the pressures weren't just from the purchasers, but even people in the FAO who advocated for meeting with those purchasers. These same FAO managers would push Erna to tamp down her criticisms of corporations or the donor countries, which, you know, was the reason that these corporations had so much power. Listen, it's cool. It's cool. Bro, be cool. They're just buying the seeds because, you know, we got to them first. That's all. So just be cool about it. Back in the field, Erna continued to do her intensive collection work across Italy, Southwest Asia, Greece, and Afghanistan. As time went on, though, she became more vocal in her concerns about genetic storage, and more importantly, by powerful private and corporate interests. Her concerns weren't just about the seed companies, but the petrochemical companies and their interests to develop plants that were resistant to specific chemical applications. So there are wild wheat strains that don't give a shit about glyphosate. How else would they be able to fight off the wild glyphosate in its native habitat? Yeah, the the, the native gly- the native wild glyphosate thing. Yeah. It's real, guys. I think it's I need a break. 
I'll send yeah. you some websites. My brain. <laughs> okay. Hey there. Is your name George? Do you use foundations to funnel money to organizations to bypass tax regulation? Are you recognized as maybe funding radical leftist movements across the globe? Well then, this commercial is for you. Specifically you, George. My name is Andy, and the Poor Pearls Almanac is looking for you. Come fund our program. We've got boomsticks. We collectivize the energy of the sun with plants. If this sounds like an ad made explicitly for you, go support the Poor Proles Almanac at poorproles.com. Welcome back, everyone. And uh, Matt has shown me that Bigfoot is real on his websites. So, yeah. And he he tried to suck my dick. I don't know. It's a weird <laughs> Bigfoot thing. Did? Actually, yeah, that's what the website said. I mean, the, not, <laughs> not me personally. Real, and he tried to suck me off. Yes, basically. That would make me believe he's real. <laughs> proof. <laughs> the sloppy toppy is the proof. Oh, my God. <laughs> Get All off right, the sorry, internet, listeners. <laughs> go outside we and apologize for these last go, go outside no. go outside 60 seconds get off the internet never so Touch i, I want andy i will not matt so i want to go back a long time ago looking at you elliot back oh, to Jesus, episodes or back 98 99 oh to uh our episodes on bill gates and agra i did not memorize all the acronyms for pop quiz the African I, green I culture. I didn't even know we had a test today. The African green revolution of Africa. A green revolution for Africa, yes. Now, the only one out of those acronyms that there was, there were many, the one we care about today, C-G-I-A-R, like cigar, sort of, but, but not. We'll go with it. So while they were involved with the second green revolution in Africa in the 90s, they'd actually been involved in seed storage and collection in Africa since the 70s. So first off, despite their decades in Africa, they're actually a French organization. And not only are they a French organization, but they're actually largely funded by the U.S. government, a whole bunch of countries in Europe, OPEC, among others, and quickly opened 15 international research centers to lead their research. In this process, they actually effectively outsourced FAO's work, and in that process, Erna and her team were cut completely out of research and storage practices. In basically creating these layers of nonprofit organizations, it became much easier to direct seeds and funding between companies and governments and just basically give the illusion that there was a diversity of players uh, that were supporting and finding success in the Green Revolution, which drove further subsidies to bring petrochemicals and improved seeds to Africa, basically without criticism. Ah, uh, yes, the Kellogg's business model. You're talking about cereal, right? They own like all the, the half the cereal aisle at Kellogg's, and like half the frozen food section. Oh yeah, and fro- that fucking like the Egos, not Legos. You can't eat those. And a bunch of snack foods. <laughs> you too. can. They just come out the other Painful. side. <laughs> yeah. So basically, their response was: if you can't buy everything, just crowd them out, bro. So during this time, Erna was directed to explicitly not contact any researchers and to not connect with any other staff or attend any other meetings without explicit approval from her new boss. Erna described this time of her like period with FAO 
by saying that she, in quote, sat around doing nothing, getting paid for it. I protested, I insisted, I stomped and hystericed, I fought, I scrabbled both with him, my division director, and the agricultural department director. I was totally encapsulated in a barrier that deprived me of all work. Oh my God, in, in 2023, when I go and ask all my colleagues that I work with, I'm like, hey, how's it going? They're like, living the fucking dream. So that's pretty much it. She was living the dream. Erna Bennett, anti-work. They're always so sarcastic about it. And that's hard R. Work. Yeah, that she was very not Gen Z approved. Clearly. Now, with too much time on her hands, she ran for the FAO Staff Council and won. And went on to become president of the Staff Council. Because what else did she have to do? So for three years during the early 70s, this was her main focus, during which time she led a strike for worker protections and wages and also set up a joint action committee, which oversaw approval of any public release from the director's journal. With this new power, suddenly the FAO were willing to give Erna basically anything she wanted to get her to step aside because she controlled what came out for basically PR. It's like corporations have always hated unions or something like that. I know. It's, it's a shock. It's weird. Erna knew she couldn't stay working as the president of the staff council for her own mental health, at the very least. So after stepping down and soon becoming frustrated once again by the corporatist interests of the institutions around her, Erna had an opportunity to leave in a blaze of glory when a complaint about monocropped timber trees from the Forestry Department of Germany was accidentally handed off to her to be responded by the FAO. <laughs> Someone else lost their job that day. Or... He got promoted for, you know, because it wasn't his job. The Not My Job the, Award? Yeah, the Not My Job Award. Yeah. So either way, it was a moment that Erna had waited for. She drafted up a response, fully criticizing the influence of corporate interests and in certain projects and resources used by the FAO. And this was quickly rubber stamped by the directors of FAO without reading because she wasn't supposed to have it in the first place. And it immediately caused an uproar about FAO documentation, highlighting the influence of corporations on their decision making. And someone else lost their job that day. Yeah. So needless to say, FAO, CGIAR. Yeah, all the alphabet boys. All the countries who funded them and the corporations who were invested in these nonprofits weren't super thrilled about the very public and specific criticism coming from FAO's own desks, especially from one of the faces at FAO. I can only guess which one in particular was mad. Now, the FAO demanded that Erna redrafted her letter defending the investments and directives of the corporations behind the organization, at which point she decided her time at FAO had run its course, penning a letter about how she refused to rescind her position after two decades in 1981. Quietly, FAO asked her for terms of resignation, which allowed her to retire at 55. She later found out unfortunately, that her boss had instructed their HR department to, in quote, get rid of Bennett at any cost. Yeah. I mean, if that's what my boss says when I'm ready to, by the time I'm ready to retire, I feel like I will have succeeded. Oh, buddy, you're not even retirement age. And I bet they are already thinking that. <laughs> Tell that to my back and knees and I will kick your ass directly back across the pond where you came from if you ever say that to me again. <laughs> Bennett went out on, you know, a blaze of glory, basically fucking setting FAO on fire. Her first day of her retirement was May 1st of 1981. She spent the day joining the May Day March in Rome. She began writing heavily, incorporating her ecological positions with her politics, taking a leading role in the Australian Marxist Quarterly Journal as a board member, 
and pushing for coordinated action against the capitalist destruction of the ecology, stating that, and I quote, if there is no other way to save a resource from destruction, they must break the law. Operative word, must. That tracks. Interestingly enough, after she left FAO, CIA representatives had reached out to offer her an opportunity to shill for CGIAR, which they wanted to basically replace FAO since CGIAR would operate explicitly outside of the grips of the public. Because of course they did. I know, shocking. I would not believe that they would ever do that to disrupt a nonprofit that was accountable to a number of uh, countries. I can't believe that either. RCIA? The guys who background check everyone I talk to on the internet, no way they're so protective of us on our phones and computers. Yes, they're doing it for your protection, Matt. That's what they tell me. Holy shit, the, the, the clicking on all my phone calls really did start after you came on the podcast. <laughs> Jesus, Matt. So in response, Erna wrote a series of articles actually defending FAO and explaining why Despite the fact that FAO didn't live up to its potential, it could still be far more successful than CGIAR. Her point wasn't that the FAO was inherently bad, but it inevitably was, you know, guided by corporate interests because of the influence and the money that corporations had. Yeah, and it's wild what crazy amounts of money will do to government projects. Now, speaking of money, funding began getting cut by corporate investors possibly in part because of her work and her vocal resistance, and more internal people began to criticize how close the organization was to corporations. Even CJIR faced similar issues at this time, and the organization reached out to Erna looking for support and guidance on new board members to appease a wider audience to shore up funding. I wonder what they meant by uh, appease a wider audience. Is that hard R? Wider. Hard R, <laughs> wider audience, Yes. So internal staff that had stayed in touch with Erna actually told her that the organization was significantly different since she left and uh, it was being managed much differently and so on. And that if she just stayed on for a few more years, she would have been very much at home. I think the, the thing to keep in mind is that that organization probably wouldn't have changed if it weren't for her very public departure, right? Yeah, you got you to gotta do a little demo before the renovation gets done. You got to break a few <laughs> eggs. I like it. You had to do a little demo before the renovation. I like I like the egg one better. You like to break a few eggs? Break a few eggs? Sure. I think I just watched Matt have a stroke trying to roll his yeah, eyes. My fucking nose is bleeding. <laughs> so during the following decades, Erna's relationship with FAO actually improved because of these changes. And she was even invited to be a speaker at one of their conferences. In the 1980s, she moved to Australia with her partner, Prue Rigby, to join her family. In Australia, she continued to focus on her writing and focused on intermingling her politics with her ecological concerns, trying to bridge a gap in conventional Marxist literature between the Marxist politics and a lack of ecological, you know, with, with the exception of actually the last, I think, decade, there really hasn't been any ecological framework for Marxism uh, until I think there's some notebooks that got published, uh, I think, like 10 years ago, something like that from Marx. So anyways, she was way before that time and had been trying to kind of fill that gap. So in 1994, uh, in the Australian Marxist Review Quarterly, which she was heavily involved with, 
she actually uh, said, and I quote, tree hugging is now just as much a part of the class struggle as is the struggle in defense of the dispossessed and landless poor whose retreat into the forest had sometimes been in the past among the first causes of forest degradation. For it needs to be remembered that behind the sophisticated causes of our present global disasters lies capitalism's greatest crime, poverty in a world of plenty and brazen wealth in a world of poverty. Delightfully, that's no longer the case. Capitalism's doing great. Is that sarcasm? No. Everything's sarcasm. Okay, so is that sarcasm, then? Wait. I might be confused now. You're just British. It's fine. (laughs) In uh, 1994, Erna moved one last time to Scotland, where her career began, still forever writing, and in her last written op-ed, she ends the piece with the following, in quote, The day is coming when scientists and intellectuals will accept the need to take social action and accept social responsibility as an integral and not a supplementary part of their scientific responsibility, adding their voices and their actions to those of millions of others. That will be the day of great hope for a direly threatened world. End quote. I mean, well, she she was not wrong. Unfortunately, I think she severely underestimated how much capitalism would even care if scientists did that. You mean like the one that set himself on fire like six months ago? Yep. Yeah. Wait, did he do it for science? <laughs> for climate change. Like it's a climate change protest. So she she died in January of 2012 at her home in Scotland with her partner by her side. Her work has largely been buried and uh, what little exists generally hides her politics. So despite the fact that she was very vocal and literate and you know she's she has a a wide swath of work that exists it's nearly impossible to find a lot of it so one of the things we'll be doing i think is trying to take some of her work and putting pdfs up of stuff that's been kind of buried so that if folks want to read it they can find it we'll probably post it we have like a i think it's a rise up or something like that that we use like it's like a public google drive basically So we can toss some stuff up there. We've also uploaded all four parts of that Australian interview. It's like three hours, three and a half hours. It's really interesting to hear her talk about her experiences. And obviously, this is just a small snippet of that paired with the other stuff that we we researched. So I think as people that have this platform, it's our job to utilize it to elevate some of these stories that have been kind of buried. So this is... Is this the last one of this series, Matt? Do you remember? Uh, no, I do not remember. Oh, Jesus, Matt. I literally thought that's why he was here. Yes. Yeah, my bad. This, Sorry, totally guys. Fine. So yes, this, this, is, this is the last episode of this series, or this miniseries. And we've covered some really interesting stuff between Sunchokes and the Marina Wool story and Ephraim Hernandez, now Erna Bennett. The last two, I think, were much more serious than the other two. And, um, you know, they're, they're stories that are worth remembering and understanding that the history of humanity is very complicated and nuanced. And despite her shortfalls as a personal human, that doesn't mean that her story shouldn't be, should go missing. Hey, look at that. We did fit. This is the end of the series, boys. We made it. We made oh, yeah. it. The list is getting smaller. No, it's not. No, I think we added three episodes while recording this one. We did. So, it's not getting smaller. So it. it's a net negative. To, yeah. We need to reach a like replacement rate, like steady state replacement rate for the list. So we it's can like only the birth add rate. like one episode or one 
item to the list per episode on average. Yeah, but then you get a two-parter like twins and your birth rate just off the charts now. Yeah, well. Your podcast episode birth rate. It's a a huge problem in the podcast market. And I have always said that. It's booming. (laughs) Podcast population is booming. Thanks to us. We're having fun. Yeah, lots of fun. Are we? Oh, okay. My nose stopped bleeding. Oh, good. Because we're done. Hopefully you guys enjoyed this. If you did, please support us on Patreon, Substack, all those fun places. Oh, oh, oh. tease them on the next series. What are we doing next? The next series is our community defense series. Hell yeah. And that's really fun. I think it's our darkest series so far. So it's, it's interesting. A lot of, again, buried stories that deserve to get exposed to more people. Pretty sure I get the yell about taking heads again. Oh, uh, I'm pretty sure you do multiple times. That's always fun for me. I am having fun. Yeah. I'm having fun again. That's coming up next, and uh, we'll see you guys around to the next next time we're here. So you can find us on social media. We have the Patreon. If you'd like to get our episodes early and some, try to put some bonus content in there. And uh, yeah, the Substack. Sub- oh, our email. Join our email list because the socials are being. They're being scrubbed a little bit. So join our email list, get to our website. We've got a website and we'll be updating stuff there as well. Correct. Get some uh, so, fresh memes on. Yeah. Poorproles.com. On Instagram.com. Fresh, fresh memes. Hot yes. off the press. Coming straight out of Andy's brain. Noggin. You don't us. have to just, you don't just have to hear him. You can see him too. No, he's got no filter on the internet. He just yeah, says whatever. Upsets a lot of people. A, a lot, lot of people. What's your weekly rate for arguments online? Oh, I don't even look at comments. I don't oh, even go there. It's no. the opposite of our list. We're just losing <laughs> followers left and right. <laughs> no, we're we're doing pretty good. We should probably wrap this up though. So people don't All want right. to hear about me talking about Instagram. That's just too much. Too too, too much. much. Goodbye, Matt, dear se- listeners. Send us off, Matthew. Thanks for tuning in. Who are we, Matt? Uh we're the Poor Pearls Almanac. Coming at you with that fresh hot plant genetics content real niche booyah see you see you on the next series hype man hype man that's me boo boo